Today's scripture reading is from the book of uh, Genesis, uh, chapter 37, verses 1 through 5. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. There are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. It's good to see you all. Happy New Year. If I haven't seen you in this, uh, in this new year yet, it's good to be with you all. Um, I want to invite you to pray with me. Our Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would bless us, continue to bless us with your presence here amongst us by your Spirit. May the, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take your word, that you would use it to give us wisdom, to give us Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. We are starting out the new year in a new sermon series on the life of Joseph. It's a story that begins in Genesis 37. Um, we're calling it the life of Joseph, but really it's not just the story of one man. It's the story of a whole family. It's an epic narrative. And I mean epic in the, in the realest sense of that word. I, I think it would make for a great Netflix series, actually. You've got intrigue in there. You've got uh, suspense. You've got betrayal. You've got supernatural dreams. You've got forgiveness. You've got redemption. There are surprise twists in this story. There are some characters in it who are downright awful. And there are others who are questionable at, at best, but also brilliant. It is, in fact, an amazing narrative. It, it feels, in some ways, cinematic. But I want you to know that although it feels cinematic, it is not cinema. It is history. It's the historical account of a family, like I said, but more than that, it's also the early history of a nation. And it's also the, the history, part of the history of how God would rescue a people for himself. It's part of the history of God's redemptive plan for the world. So as we walk through this saga of Joseph and his family, here's how we want to approach it, okay? New Hope, we want to do it in at least two ways. On the one hand, we want to take important lessons away from this story. We're going to glean wisdom as we look at the decisions that these people make. Their wise decisions and their awful choices and sins, too. This is one real important way for us to approach these stories in the Old Testament. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. I love the way he puts it, so I'm going to read it to you. He says there in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things took place as examples for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. And in verse 11, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, he's talking about the Old Testament accounts of Moses and the nation of Israel. But what he's saying here really applies to uh, the story of Joseph, too, which came some generations earlier. First of all, Paul says, when, when you're reading these Old Testament accounts, recognize that this is real history. They actually took place, he said. But also, realize that they were recorded for us, recorded for you, so that you would learn from them, so that you would avoid the evil desires and choices that some of those folks made, so that you would live more wisely, and so that you would honor your God as a result of what you learn from these stories. You see that? We, we read these stories as examples to learn from. But that's not the only way that we approach these stories. In fact, according to Jesus Christ himself, there's an even more important way to read them. Look at, look at Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Jesus, in this section of the Gospel, has already been crucified. He's already risen from the dead. And right here, he's walking along a road with a couple of disciples. Only, only they don't know it's him yet. They don't recognize him. They're, they're deeply upset because Jesus has died. They, they had found his grave empty, so they knew something weird was going on, but they're confused. They don't even know what it means that his, he's not in his grave. So listen what Jesus says to him, Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Now look at the next sentence. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus is pointing to all the scriptures and he's saying, it's all about me. The whole Old Testament, the books written by Moses, which includes Genesis, all the books of the prophets that come later, the whole Old Testament, he says, it's all about God's plan to send the Son, the chosen anointed Redeemer to save his people. So as we read the story of Joseph and his family, at every turn, we want to ask ourselves, what does this have to do with God's plan to send a Savior? What, what does this tell us about the Savior, his work, his character, his identity? You see, when we approach the story in that way, we are going to get practical takeaways, right? We're going to find wisdom for how we should live, but we're also going to see that ultimately the story doesn't just give us life lessons, like the rest of the entire Bible, it reveals truth about Christ and about the gospel. That is, it reveals truth about God's mission to redeem a people for himself through Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you in, uh, in the weeks ahead to read through the story of Joseph. It's in Genesis 37 through to the end of Genesis chapter 50. So read ahead during the week. Read the whole thing a few times Get to know this story. For some of you, maybe it's brand new. I don't know. Maybe some of you grew up with this story. I suspect a lot of you grew up with this story in Sunday school classes. You heard it from your parents, maybe. And, and for you, maybe this story might be too familiar, actually. The coat, the dreams, Pharaoh, Egypt, 
all of it just feels too familiar. So, so try to read it as if you've never read it before. Pay attention to the details. Ask questions like, why is this happening? What does this mean? And I think that you'll notice as you read it that it's not a cute fairy tale. It's not tidy and clean. After all, this is family history we're reading. And when has family history ever been tidy and clean? Is your family history tidy and clean? Mine is not. The Bible is not always rated G, is it? Sometimes it's not even PG or PG-13. Years ago, I was, um, I was reading with my kids. We were reading 1 Samuel chapter 11. Um, I won't even go into what that chapter's about, but my son, who at the time was about seven or eight years old, he stops us and he's like, whoa, dad, this is not family friendly. He said, it's not family friendly. And um, I was like, oh, you might be right about that, son. There, there are parts of Joseph's story that you might feel that way about. Next week, in, in, in particular, is rough. Okay, Genesis 38, which we're going to look at next Sunday, has some awful details in it. I, I, I need to give you a heads up about that, in fact. Especially if you have younger members of your family who, who you bring into this gathering with you. Some of you younger folks who are here with your parents. I'll leave it up to you, parents, how to decide what you want to do or how you want to handle that. I, for one, here's my take, I feel like there's no better place to learn about sin and its results, including sexual sin and its results, than from God's word and with God's people. I think it's a great place to learn about that stuff. The Bible is never needlessly inappropriate or needlessly graphic. And and I certainly won't be as we walk through this story. But there are awful sins here in the story of Joseph. There's no doubt. There's violence and there's depravity. But there's also grace. And there's repentance. And there's redemption. And, And remember, remember, all these things were written down for our instruction. For our instruction. Now, all of that is, uh, it just ramps us up into the story. So let's get into it, okay? Genesis chapter 37. This is uh, our, our first dip into the story. Episode one, right? Dreams and dysfunction is what we see here. So chapter 37, verse one. It says there, Jacob lived in, I should say, yeah. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Remember, story of a family, right? But, but if this were a Netflix series, it's, it's as if we're starting a few seasons in. Like we're jumping halfway in. Because this family saga actually begins several chapters back in the book of Genesis. It starts back in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes and he speaks to a man by the name of Abraham. And and he says to Abraham, well, at that point his name was still Abram. And he says to Abram in chapter 12, leave your country and your family. I'm going to give you a new land to live in. I'm going to give you many descendants. And I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. That's the promise that God gives to this man, Abram. And now the rest of the Bible traces out the fulfillment of that promise. And it's ultimately fulfilled 
in the coming of Jesus Christ. He's the, ultimately the promised descendant of Abraham who would become the blessing to the whole world. He's born in the line of Abraham, Jesus Christ is. Now Genesis itself, beginning at chapter 12, all the way to the end, it tells the story of how Abraham goes from being this, 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 just this insignificant man to actually becoming a great big family. And eventually he becomes a great big nation, the nation of Israel. Abraham and his wife Sarah, they have a child named Isaac. God tells Abraham, this is, your prom- this is the son I promised you, Abraham. This is Isaac, your promised son. The blessing is going to come through his line. And Isaac, he has some kids. He has children, and one of them is named Jacob, who we find here in chapter 37. It's the same Jacob. He's in the land of Canaan. The land that God promised to his grandfather Abraham, and he has lots of children of his own. And one of Jacob's kids is Joseph. So this is a big family, by the way. Very big. It's also a deeply dysfunctional family. It's a mess of a family. And we begin to see that right off the bat. Because Joseph here is 17 years old when we meet him, and he's out taking care of the family's sheep, with some of his brothers. But look how the verse describes his brothers. It says, he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Notice that, wives, that's plural. That's not a typo. Jacob actually had two official wives. Their names were Leah and Rachel. And then there's Bilhah and Zilpah, who aren't technically wives in a formal sense, but are what the Bible sometimes calls concubines. And Jacob has kids with all of these women. Now let's just pause before we move on, all right? Sometimes, and I've heard this personally, people say, look, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, men had several wives. Not only that, they mistreated their wives, treated them terribly. They had sex with whoever they wanted to, and apparently God was okay with all that. No, he wasn't. Not ever. In fact, whenever the Bible talks about a person having more than one spouse or having concubines or anything like that, you can be sure that things are not good. God makes it clear that right from the very start in Genesis 1, his design, his design from the beginning has been that marriage would be a lifelong covenant commitment between one man, one woman, always. Genesis 1 says that. The New Testament repeats that in the book of Ephesians. Jesus Christ himself verbally confirms that. There's no doubt what God's design has always been. He keeps repeating it throughout the Bible. And in that marriage relationship, God says, that marriage relationship that's marked by mutual dignity, mutual respect, sex is beautiful and it's, it's honoring to God, And the result is is health and flourishing for families. But but God also makes it clear that any departure from that design in the scriptures, whether it's people with multiple wives or it's sex outside of marriage, any kind of departure from that design in the Bible, God shows us it's dishonoring to him. And listen, it's always followed by trouble and hurt and confusion every single time. You name it. 
There's pain, there's destruction, every time that design is departed from. Even in some cases where the narrator who's telling the story doesn't stop everything and say, hey, what this guy's doing is wrong. He had two wives, two concubines, bad news, that's bad. The narrator doesn't always tell us that. But the story always bears it out. You see, the story always shows us the awful results of that sexual sin. And Jacob's family is no exception. We're going to see that super clearly. Look at verse 3 of Genesis 37. It says there, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. Israel is another name for Jacob, by the way. God gave him the name Israel. And he made for him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You see, Joseph has a favorite kid. I mean, Jacob has a favorite kid, and it's Joseph. And, and here's why Joseph is Jacob's favorite kid. It says because he was the son of his youth. You see, but that, it's not just because he was born when Jacob was older. I should say, the Bible says that he, he's his favorite because he was the son of his old age. But it doesn't just mean that he favors him because he was born when Jacob was older. You see, Joseph was Jacob's favorite also because he was born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Jacob had a favorite wife. He also had a favorite son. And he wasn't discreet about this. He makes his favorite boy the special robe or coat. It, it was a sign of honor. It wasn't just a nice gift. When, when Joseph wore this coat around his brothers, it was a sign that he had special honor, perhaps even special authority. And Jacob's old other sons hated Joseph because of it, which you might expect, right? What, what else is going to come from this other than hate? Because, because even in a family, think about how it works. Often I think it works this way. In a family where a parent or a father, for instance, shows favoritism towards a kid, it breeds hate. And sometimes the hate isn't so much towards the father, it could be, but sometimes it's not so much towards the father, it's towards the sibling who's getting favored, right? If you're not number one, you may start to hate your parents, but it's even more likely they're going to start hating the one who is number one. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they couldn't even say a kind word to him. That's what this means. In fact, it means that they, not only could they not say a kind words to them, when he says they couldn't speak peacefully, it means they couldn't even say shalom to him. They couldn't even greet him with like a, hey, peace to you. Eventually, we're going to see, they couldn't even stomach the sight of him. And, and, and let's just pause for a second here again and note something important. What we are seeing here are the sins of one generation getting passed down to another. It's the sins of a father repeating themselves in the life and the family of his sons. Here's what I mean. Jacob's father Isaac played favorites too. Jacob's father Isaac had two sons, two twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was number one from the very get-go. Jacob was never loved the same, he was never treated the same, and this hurt him deeply. In fact, Jacob allowed it to fill him with envy and bitterness. 
So when we find out that Jacob is now showing the same kind of favoritism with his own kids, at first we might say, what, really, Jacob? You're going to repeat the same kind of trash that destroyed you? You're going to repeat this in your own family? But maybe it does make sense after all. Because the fact is that sins often do get passed down like this, don't they? Sometimes it's the very things that we hate most in our family, in our parents, that we end up repeating. Is this not true? Have you seen this happen? And not in every case. In some cases, what happens is if we hate something in our family and our parents, we swing to the opposite extreme. Sometimes that happens, right? But often we end up just repeating the same patterns, the same sins, even though we know firsthand where they will lead. Jacob is doing exactly that by showing partiality, favoritism towards Joseph. It's generational sin is what we call it, family sin. And it's destroying this household. It's fostering hate, and it's helping ruin these children's character, including Joseph's character, as we're about to see. Look at verse 5. Let's keep going through this story. Keep plugging through it. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers understand this this, uh, dream really well pretty quickly, right? They interpret it. They're like, hold up. Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So here we see more of the effects of dad's favoritism. I'm not just talking about the hate towards Joseph. There's more. I believe that Joseph at 17 here is a a pretty arrogant kid. A pretty arrogant young man, I should say. He has a dream. It's a dream from God that gets confirmed later on in the story. And he decides to tell his brothers about it even though he must know already that they have it in for him. It's as if he's rubbing it in. I mean, imagine the scene. Imagine him wearing the coat, right? The coat that everyone in the family hates except for him. He loves it. He loves to wear it around his brothers. It says they didn't just get angry about the dream. They got angry about his words. They got angry about what he was saying to them, how he was saying it to them. You will one day bow to me. It's it's as if he's coming to them and saying, look, not only does dad think I'm special, guess what, fellas? God thinks I'm special too. And you will all one day bow to me. Any of you have younger younger siblings? How, How would you feel about this? How would you feel about your younger siblings calling the shots or declaring that one day they would call the shots like this, that you would be subordinate to them? Scholars are um, sometimes split on what to make of, of Joseph here, especially earlier scholars, like the, the, the much, much older scholars. Um, they sometimes look at Joseph, and I think it comes from a desire to see Joseph as like, he's like the hero of the story, so we want to paint him with a very positive brush. And sometimes what people will do is they say, well, you know, Joseph, he wasn't really being obnoxious or arrogant here. He, he was just naive. He's a good kid. He, he was innocent. He doesn't realize what he's doing. 
lots of other scholars, especially more recent ones, find it hard to accept that. Me, I'm no scholar, but I'm a, as a reader, I find it hard to accept that too. Because Joseph is 17 years old, and he's bright. We're going to find that out. And, and I know this much about human nature too. That if you favor a child, you coddle that child, you indulge that child, and you give him honor and authority over his siblings, guess what's going to happen? He's going to flaunt that, isn't he? Joseph, I believe, is flaunting it. He's not self-aware and humble and quiet. He's entitled. And the result of all that is more hate from his brothers. The next section bears that out. More hate. Look at verse 9. Then Joseph dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, they were already angry at the first one, right? He comes back and says, Hey, look, I got a better dream this time. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Aren't you excited for me? <laughs> the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. Even his dad is getting mad at this point. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? I mean, he's a favorite son, but he's taking it too far at this point, right? It says in verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father, his father makes something of it. He gets angry, but he also hides it in his heart. He keeps it in mind, dwells on it. He knows there's something to this promise. So again, Joseph comes back to his brothers. He says, guess what? Another dream. This one's even better. His dad rebukes him. I don't know if this is the first time he ever got yelled at in front of his brothers. I wonder. Maybe they were happy. For once, Joseph's getting in trouble. I don't know. But the sibling hate just gets hotter. And things get worse as this all unfolds. Let's keep reading through the story. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Great parenting, right? They hate the boy. He's like, you go check on them. And he said, Joseph says to Jacob, here I am. And so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Remember at the beginning of, verse 30, of chapter 37, it says that Joseph was out pasturing sheep with his brothers? Well, here his brothers are out pasturing sheep. He's not there. He's at home. We don't know why. It may be, maybe, maybe more preferential treatment. They got sent out to work. He got to stay at home and chill in the coat. Maybe. I don't know. Jacob says, go out to Shechem to check if all is well with your brothers. Literally, he's saying, go check if everything is shalom, if everything is peaceful with them. And Joseph goes. But what Joseph doesn't realize at this moment is that he is walking into what will be the opposite of shalom, the opposite of peace. Things are going to get dark very quickly for this young man. Shechem was about 50 miles away from where they were, where he was with his parents, with his parents. Hebron. Joseph gets there, 
to Shechem. His brothers are nowhere to be found. Stranger tells him they headed to Dothan. Joseph says, okay, I'm going to go to Dothan too and find them. It's about 14 miles beyond that, all right? So he's about 64, 65 miles away from home at this point and apparently on his own. Verse 18, it says, they saw him from afar. These words are so foreboding. This is scary. He doesn't know what he's walking into. Maybe they recognize the coat from far away, but he's walking towards them. And before he came near, it says, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us, see how quickly things escalate here? Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Those are scary words. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. It, you know that, that, that phrase I just read, you know, we will see what happens to his dreams. They're very scary words, but if you know the end of the story, they're really ironic words too. Because <laughs> the dreams come true. In any case, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. You see, Reuben's got a plan. Throw him in the pit. When everything gets cleared up, these guys are able to take a step back, breathe, calm down. I will come back and rescue my little brother. That's a plan anyway. It doesn't work out. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. You see that emphasis, the focus on that robe, the coat, Verse 24, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Imagine the depth of hate here in the hearts of these men. Joseph is walking towards them. They hatch this plan, and the plan isn't, it's not like it's, it's not, hey, let's play a prank on Joseph, you know. This kid's such a pain. It's not, let's, it's not even let's confront him and talk to him. Let, let's, let's tell him what's on our minds. Let's put him in his place. It's not even that. It's let's kill him from the jump. Thankfully, Reuben, he steps in. But even his plan, it's not, hey, let's talk this over. His plan is just slightly better. It's let's just throw him in the pit. Don't kill him. His brothers rip off the coat. They toss him into this dark, empty hole. And you know, if you read ahead in Genesis 42... The, the brothers are talking about this and they're remembering this. It says, it says that they can remember that when they threw him in the pit, Joseph was begging them for mercy. He was screaming to his brothers, asking them to please not do this. It may have been the first time that boy ever had to beg for anything, but he's begging for his life. They ignore him. In fact, what they did is they sat down and they ate says. Look at verse 25. Sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him. For he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianites, ten traders, passed by, and they 
drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took him to Egypt. This, at this point in the story, this is the first time we get introduced to Judah, in this chapter at least, right? First time we see Judah in the chapter. And we're going to find out soon that this guy Judah is, he is one bad dude. It's his idea to sell Joseph in the first place. And it's fascinating, just, to think, just in terms of just psychologically, as a character study, it's interesting to look at Judah for just a moment and say, how does he rationalize this? Because Judah starts out by saying, look, let's sell him and cash it. What's the point of killing him? Let's sell him and cash in. But then it's as if he notices that that sounds really awful. <laughs> because then he says, plus, you know, we shouldn't really hurt him because he's our flesh, he's our brother and all. It's such compassion, right? It's such love. What a family. At that very moment, what happens here is that the sons of Jacob become human traffickers of their own brother. Pull them out and sell them for 30 pieces of, of uh, silver. 20 shekels, I should say. Psalm 105, it tells us that, that some details. Psalm 105 tells us that, that, that Joseph's ankles were shackled and that they bled, they hurt. And he had an iron collar around his neck. He was led away as property. The favorite son is off to a foreign land. No more freedom, no more honor, nothing. Let's just read the last little piece of this episode. Verse 29 says that when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? You see, Reuben apparently wasn't in on the plan to, to sell him. He didn't know he had been sold, apparently. Then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat. Listen to this. They dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Jacob identified it. He said, It's my, he said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. These men who had sold this boy off show up before their dad to now comfort him with lies. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol with my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We should notice not just how cold-blooded these men were towards their brother, but how cold-blooded they were towards their father. They dipped the coat in goat's blood they give it to Jacob. Is this your sons? They don't even say, is this, is this our brothers? They say, is this your sons? The father's broken. He wants to die. This little boy, this little boy that he had made into an idol is now gone, killed by beasts. And what Jacob doesn't realize is that his own sons had actually played the beast. 
We are seeing more generational sin here, by the way. More family sin getting passed down from, from generation to generation. Because years before this, Jacob himself had deceived his father, Isaac. His mother, Rebekah, helped him do it. Jacob had, had used a, a couple of goats even to do it. Some parallels. He used a couple of goats to deceive his father. You can read about that in Genesis 27. And now this, this deceitful son, Jacob, is being deceived by his own deceitful sons. It's all coming back around. These family sins, they're just echoing over and over and over again, causing more destruction, more sadness. And this episode is over. Before we end, I want to give you two takeaways. Two things that I think I just, just want to, to, to notice in this story. One of them we've already seen, I just want to remind you of it, and it's this. We see in this story the presence and power of generational sins. And I want to ask you if you see any of that in your family. Do you see any of that in yourself? It might be the same sins that you see in Jacob, the, these, the, like favoritism, uh, these lies, these sins of dishonesty. Or maybe it's something else altogether. Maybe it's anger. It's been passed down. You see it in your family throughout, his, throughout the, the years. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's even abuse. The fact is that most of us learn by watching, don't we? Most of us learn by watching the people in our family. We learn by watching our parents. And some of us had the blessedness of being able to learn and watch and see such beautiful things in our parents. And the things that we see, we usually do. But it, were there sins that you were exposed to throughout your childhood that now you find repeating in your own life and in your own family? Or maybe, maybe like I said before, you've swung to the other extreme, because that happens sometimes, right? We, 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 see the, we see those sins, we don't like them, we go to the other side, right? So for instance, your parents were very neglectful um, of you, maybe they were overly demanding of you, you now have kids and you're very, in, you're like overly indulging and overly um, accommodating towards them. That's one way it could work out. Or, you know, your parents were, were greedy, they hoarded money, now you've swung to the other end, you're maybe um, careless with it. But either way, whether you're copying, you're either, whether you're repeating the patterns or you're swinging to the other extreme, really what we're seeing is still just family sin, the echoes of it being passed down, one form or another. The failings of one generation carrying on to the next. And, and this isn't just present in, in, in train wreck families like Joseph's. This is present in healthy, godly families too, isn't it? Sins get passed down. They're, they're like a legacy. And the patterns are hard to break. So I want to encourage you, if you're not already, to pay attention to these. To scope them out, to see them, to talk about them. To ask even, if you're married, ask yourself, what are, what are they? Do you see any in my family? Do I see any in yours that, that we're repeating? Just talk to your kids about them. Ask, ask yourself, what, what legacy you might be unintentionally passing down? What, what future grief you may in fact 
be sowing in the lives of your family members now. There's a, there's a, there's a, a beautiful word that, of encouragement from the Lord that comes alongside that. Because God is able to break the pattern and change the direction of our family lines, isn't he? Because through faith in Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. Through adoption, through faith in Christ, you are adopted into a new clan with new DNA. And you will be conformed to the image of your heavenly father. And you will be conformed to the likeness of your savior brother, Jesus Christ. His righteousness will be worked into you ongoingly. That's what sanctification is. And the fact is that God is often pleased to bring radical change in a family line at one generation. Sometimes it's many generations. Sometimes it's one. You can almost, it's, it's, you can scope out that, that, that swivel point, the point where everything changed. Let's ask for that. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. And, and furthermore, this, this story teaches us that God works through messed up families. Praise God for that, huh? If there's something that you want to celebrate, celebrate this. God works through messed up families. Because over the course of this story, the fact is that God is going to change these people. They're going to go through drastic transformation. There's going to be repentance. We're going to see that as we go on. But they're never going to be a perfect household. But still, he uses this train wreck of a family. This biological line he uses to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And you know what? It's not even through Joseph. Joseph isn't the, it's not through Joseph's line that Jesus Christ comes. It's through Judah's. The worst in the whole family. The baddest dude of the bunch. It's through his line that Jesus comes. So listen, in the face of your family sin, that maybe you're fighting hard to not repeat, or you're already seeing it happen in your generation, whether it's favoritism or it's deceit or whatever it might be. Listen, in the face of all of your family sin, God sends his beloved son, the truly and deservedly favored son, Jesus, to die for you. Jesus willingly set aside his coat of glory, that coat of honor and privilege. He sets it aside. He's stripped of it, and he dies for us so that we could be welcomed into God's family so that we could be shown favor so that we can wear the coat wear the robe of his righteousness and his holiness you see what God does for us in the gospel is the exact opposite of what Jacob did with his kids God is able to forgive and break the power of sins that have lived in our families for generations. And lastly, quickly, we see in this story the presence and the power of God. It's not just the presence and power of generational sin. We see the presence and power of God here. You know that God is not mentioned even once in this whole chapter? Did you notice that? What you, the chapter just looks like chaos. Think about Joseph in that pit. 
He's screaming and he's crying for rescue. No one answers him. No one helps. Where in the world is God in that moment? Were the dreams he had just a joke? Was God just setting him up for humiliation? He's in this dark pit in Dothan, 60 plus miles away from home. You know the only other time that this town Dothan is mentioned in the Bible? It's very interesting. I just learned this this week, actually. The only other time that Dothan is mentioned in the Bible is in 2 Kings. There's a story in there about the prophet Elisha. Elisha is in Dothan, same place, and he's surrounded by enemies. The Syrian army surrounds him. And, and Elisha's there with his servant, and his servant says what many of us would say if we found ourselves in that situation. His servant says, we're done, we're dead, we're over. Elisha prays. Listen to this, Elisha prays. He says, oh Lord, please open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And so the Lord opens the eyes of the servant. The servant looks up at the mountains around him. And what does he see? He sees that the mountains are full of horses and chariots of fire that were sent by God. God has surrounded them. He is protecting them. He's all over the place. And he outnumbers the Syrian army. Same place, Dothan. What's the point? What's the point? The point is God is present. The point is God is present when Elisha is facing his enemies. God was present when Joseph was at the bottom of that pit. He was present. He was not seen. He was not even felt. But he was present. I love the way one author put it. He says, the apparent hiddenness of God does not equal uncaring absence. Let me repeat that. The the apparent hiddenness. He feels like he's hidden. Where is he? That does not mean he is uncaring and absent. Joseph was going to come to see that very soon. We're going to see that in this story. At this point, all Joseph has is these dreams he's been given. Maybe, just maybe his dad told him, trust, maybe his dad taught him to trust God. We don't know. I, I wouldn't bet on it, to be honest. But we have much more than Joseph. We have this amazing truth in Romans 8.28, which tells us, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That means that if someone has been called by God, if you have been called by God into his family, adopted into God's family by faith in Christ, you have been loved by him, you can say that in every circumstance, regardless of how absent God feels, he is powerfully present and powerfully active. Always. He was doing a million things while Joseph was was sitting in that pit. Joseph had no way of knowing it. But God was already at that point setting in motion all the details that would lead to the fulfilling of Joseph's dreams. Joseph didn't know what it was going to take for those dreams to come true. He didn't know that it was going to take abandonment, enslavement, imprisonment, all the loss, all the pain. But God was already rolling out his plan. In fact, God was also working to transform Joseph in the process. He was emptying Joseph of the entitlement and the pride and the arrogance. He was already working on Joseph at this point, humbling him. And he was at work in Joseph's family, 
bringing transformation back home. Joseph had no way of knowing that. And God was working out the details of how he would save the world from a famine that was just years ahead and no one knew it yet. And God was working out the details of his plan to save the world, not just from the famine, but to save the world from sin through Jesus Christ who would come through this very family. God was doing a million things while Joseph was sitting in a pit thinking, God, you're doing nothing. Where are you? Sometimes we simply do not know what God is up to. But we can know that he is powerfully present and active. You can know that God is presently, pow presently powerful, excuse me, powerfully present and active. And chapter 37 ends with just a glimpse of that. Because at the very end of the story it says, think about this, Jacob is back home He's torn his clothes. He wants to die because he's lost his son. Think about the scene back home. Uh, 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 jo Joseph's brothers are all dealing with the aftermath of what they just did. They just sold their son into slavery. How are they processing that? In the midst of all that craziness, it says in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You see, God's plan was unfolding perfectly as it always does. Praise be to him for that. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that this account has the power both to humble us and to encourage us. Lord, it humbles us when it shows us that our lives and our families are, are no better than, than this one. Not really, not deep down. There's still depravity, there's still sin, there's still generational patterns of sin that we've passed down and inherited and continue. But Lord, this, this narrative encourages us so deeply when it shows us that you in the gospel have the power to not only forgive, but to destroy the power of sin in our families, in our lives that you even now are actively at work doing that for your people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in the midst of whatever circumstance, I pray for this entire church, Lord, in whatever circumstances brothers and sisters find themselves, would they know, would they know that your apparent absence is not indication that you do not care and that you're not at work, but you are there. Lord, we sang just a few minutes earlier, we sang that darkness not yet understood sometimes surrounds us. But Lord, you, Lord, you will complete your work. And this hope is sure. Help us to trust, Lord. Help us to trust. In Jesus' name, amen.